to Anne Sharp. Thursday, the 22nd of May, 1817, Chawton. Your kind letter, my dearest Anne, found me in bed, for in spite of my hopes and promises when I wrote to you, I have since been very ill indeed. An attack of my sad complaint seized me within a few days afterwards, the most severe I ever had, and coming upon me after weeks of indisposition, it reduced me very low. I have kept my bed since the 13th of April, with only removals to a sofa. Now I am getting well again, and indeed have been gradually though slowly recovering my strength for the last three weeks. I can sit up in my bed and employ myself, as I am proving to you at this present moment, and really am equal to being out of bed, but that the posture is thought good for me. How to do justice to the kindness of all my family during this illness is quite beyond me. Every dear brother so affectionate and so anxious. And as for my sister, words must fail me in any attempt to describe what a nurse she has been to me. Thank God she does not seem the worse for it. And as there was never any sitting up necessary, I am willing to hope she has no after-fatigues to suffer from. I have so many alleviations and comforts to bless the Almighty for. My head was always clear, and I had scarcely any pain. My chief sufferings were from feverish nights, weakness and languor. This discharge was on me for above a week, and as our Alton apothecary did not pretend to be able to cope with it, better advice was called in. Our nearest very good is at Winchester, where there is a hospital and capital surgeons, and one of them attended me, and his applications gradually removed the evil. The consequence is that instead of going to town to put myself into the hands of some physician, as I should otherwise have done, I am going to Winchester instead, for some weeks to see what Mr. Lyford can do farther towards re-establishing me in tolerable health. On Saturday next, I am actually going thither. My dearest Cassandra with me, I need hardly say. And as this is only two days off, you will be convinced that I am now really a very genteel, portable sort of an invalid. The journey is only 16 miles. We have comfortable lodgings engaged for us by our kind friend Mrs. Heathcote, who resides in Winchester and are to have the accommodation of my elder brother's carriage, which will be sent over from Steventon on purpose. Now, that's a sort of thing which Mrs. James Austin does in the kindest manner. But still she is in the main not a liberal-minded woman, and as to this reversionary properties amending that part of her character, expect it not, my dear Anne. Too late, too late in the day. And besides, the property may not be theirs these ten years. My aunt is very stout. Mrs. F.A. has had a much shorter confinement than I have, with a baby to produce into the bargain. We were put to bed nearly at the same time, and she has been quite recovered this great while. I hope you have not been visited with more illness, my dear Anne, either in your own person or your Eliza's. I must not attempt the pleasure of addressing her again, till my hand is stronger, but I prize her invitation to do so. Believe me, I was interested in all you wrote, though with all the egotism of an invalid I write only of myself. Your charity to the poor woman I trust fails no more in effect than I am sure it does in exertion. What an interest it must be to you all, and how gladly should I contribute more than my good wishes were it possible, but how you are worried. Wherever distress falls, you are expected to supply comfort, Lady Pilkington writing to you even from Paris for advice. It is the influence of strength over weakness indeed. Continue to direct to Chawton. The communication between the two places will be frequent. I have not mentioned my dear mother. She suffered much for me when I was at the worst, but is tolerably well. 
Miss Lloyd, too, has been all kindness. In short, if I live to be an old woman, I must expect to wish I had died now, blessed in the tenderness of such a family, and before I had survived either them or their affection. You would have held the memory of your friend Jane, too, in tender regret, I am sure. But the providence of God has restored me, and may I be more fit to appear before him when I am summoned than I shall have been now. Sick or well, believe me ever your attached friend, J. Austin. This letter is the only surviving correspondence of one of history's greatest writers to an enigmatic acquaintance, and nearly the last words written before her untimely death. Read by an AI-generated voice that was guided by historical evidence of the singular writing style of its author, it gives us the ability to closely imagine the vocal style of none other than Jane Austen. That is, her voice, not the ones assigned to the literary characters vividly brought to life in her famous novels, or the sounds of their voices that we imagine as we pour over each sentence. In this digital age, where our voices traverse the world with ease, thanks to technology, we often forget the quiet power that resides in a handwritten letter. Jane navigated the straight-laced world of Regency-era England with a sharp wit and astute observations, and her beloved novels such as Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, and Emma continue to captivate readers to this day. But behind her literary accomplishments, there lies a hidden tapestry of connections, friendships, and inspirations that have shaped her work and legacy. Jane's letters actually reveal a life more compelling than anything from her six cherished novels and offer a glimpse at her true essence, as well as revelations about her very private life. This particular letter provides insight to the long-kept secrets surrounding two of the greatest champions of Jane's writing, and arguably her most trusted collaborators. Secrets that one of those collaborators went to great lengths to keep hidden. Welcome to the Virtuosa Society podcast, where I'll be diving into remarkable secret and hidden in plain sight stories of collaborations that were born from various shared struggles between female creatives. We're going to unlock the memory banks of women to discover the experiences that resonate most with womanhood beyond the missing pages in history books, to the nuanced truths and realities and, and revelations that have unlocked true creativity in women, all in an effort to elevate the future for women carving out artistic, creative, nonlinear lives. I'm Katie Harmon, your host. I'm insatiably curious, a lifelong seeker and a storyteller, primarily through song as a professional performer for more than half of my life now. <laughs> I also happen to be a former Miss America and a women's healthcare advocate, both foundational experiences from which I built my collection of and deep respect for the stories of women by women and for women. Let's unlock today's story, shall we? The Austin's English countryside of the late 18th and early 19th centuries was a world of quill pens, elegant balls, and societal conventions. 
in the small village of Steventon, just a little over an hour's drive from London today. In the bustling Steventon Rectory is where Reverend George Austin and his wife Cassandra Lee filled their home to the rafters with six boys and two girls, as well as additional boy pupils as boarders for the Reverend to supplement his clerical income. While often cramped, the old quintessentially Georgian-era vicarage was squarely built with lovely architecture, four good-sized reception rooms, five or six bedrooms, and an idyllic setting next to the church in the heart of the small community, with views of the surrounding countryside. Attached was also a small farm to supply the family with meat and vegetables and maids and manservants to help with the work. Jane was born on December 16th, 1775, seventh of the eight Austin children. History has known as fair share of infamous siblings. For those who've experienced life's adventures with a sister or brother in tow, you can attest to them being the OG of collaborators. (laughs) I myself have a younger sister. We're only 15 months apart in age, so you can imagine that we were thick as thieves throughout our childhood. Siblings are often our first conspirators, our first critics, and with any luck, trusted advisors. And often, those first collaborative experiences with siblings inform and shape future relationship with others whom a kindred-like bond is felt. Jane Austen's closest and most cherished bond was with her older sister, Cassandra, and it was the kinship that did indeed shape her writing and her relationships with others, as well as how her story would be told for over 200 years. Jane was the youngest daughter of the eight Austin siblings, with Cassandra fifth in line. While the Austin brothers were devoted to their sisters, customs of the period bound them to social positions which excluded women, such as clergymen following in dad's footsteps, (laughs) high-ranking military officers, and heirs to family property. However, second-born George, their father's namesake, was born deaf and mute, often stricken with epilepsy and labeled mentally incapable. Though George spent his early years with his siblings, at age eight and forthwith, he lived the remaining years of his life with his uncle away from his immediate family. Jane mentioned using sign language in order to communicate with her beloved brother in a letter to Cassandra dated December 28, 1808. He has lived in that house more than twenty years, and poor man is so totally deaf that they say he could not hear a cannon were it fired close to him. Having no cannon at hand to make the experiment, I took it for granted, and talked to him a little with my fingers, which was funny enough. Fascinatingly juxtaposed from the forced isolation of George were the fortuitous circumstances of Edward, the third-born Austin, who was adopted at age 12 by Thomas and Catherine Knight, two of his father's dearest friends. The childless couple was extremely wealthy and took an interest in Edward and made him their legal heir in 1783. He served as High Sheriff of Kent and inherited Godmersham Park, a stunning estate in Kent, as well as two other estates with massive libraries, which Jane often used. He also gifted Jane, Cassandra, and their mother with a cottage in Chawton, where she lived during her last years. Just as we heard in her letter from Chawton a mere seven weeks before her death on July 18, 1817, at the age of 41, 
Throughout her life, she heavily relied on and deeply appreciated Cassandra's dedicated championship. From an early age, Jane and Cassandra were inseparable. United by sharp intellects, they shared a love for storytelling and writing and formed an unbreakable trust. At age six, Jane begged to accompany Cassandra to boarding school, and although she was considered a bit young, it's rumored that Mrs. Austin justified their joint enrollment by stating, if Cassandra's head had been going to be cut off, Jane would have hers cut off too. And so off they went, first to a school in Oxford and then to Southampton. However, they were swiftly brought home when a putrid fever broke out in the town and both girls became ill. From 1785 to 1786, they attended the Abbey House School, where they were taught writing, reading, spelling, French, history, geography, needlework, drawing, music, and dancing. After this, their education was undertaken privately at home. Whilst their formal education was limited, the girls were given unrestricted access to their father's extensive library. Its books instilled Jane's lifelong love of reading. Hand in hand with her love for reading was her delight with music, particularly with the piano, which she played all her life. When the girls were being educated at home, Reverend Austin bought Jane a pianoforte and arranged for her to receive instruction from the assistant organist at Winchester Cathedral. When the family left Steventon in 1801, the piano was sold, and while living in Bath and Southampton, Jane made do with a rented instrument. With a final move to Chawton in 1809, she wrote to Cassandra, Yes, yes, we will have a pianoforte, as good a one as can be got for thirty guineas, and I will practice country dances, that we may have some amusement for our nephews and nieces when we have the pleasure of their company. Cassandra was an especially talented watercolorist. In 1791, at age 18, she created a series of circular illustrations of British monarchs for Jane's manuscript, The History of England, of which members of the royal family looked eerily similar to members of the Austen family. (laughs) She's also credited with having created two paintings of her sister. One, painted in 1804, is a back view of Jane seated by a tree in a blue dress with her face hidden by a bonnet. The other, an incomplete pencil and watercolor portrait dated circa 1810, was described by a family member as being quote-unquote hideously unlike Jane Austen's real appearance. However, it is considered the only authenticated portrait of the celebrated author and is famously housed in the National Portrait Gallery in London. Jane and Cassandra's nephew, James Edward Austin Lee, commissioned a watercolor by James Andrews based on Cassandra's drawing. To illustrate his biography of his aunt, a memoir of Jane Austen published in 1870. As the girls grew, so did their correspondence by letter. And historians believe Jane wrote nearly 3,000 letters in her brief lifetime, the majority to her beloved sister. And those letters were crucial to Jane's development as an author. Catherine Sutherland, an editor of the Austin Sisters collection of letters, refers to them as, quote, a continuous if unsynchronized conversation, unquote, and the primary source to hear Jane's voice loud and clear. By standard convention, the letters were a means to convey social communications between the rest of the family, sometimes read aloud to a group. But... Jane cleverly and confidently used letter writing to synthesize and share ideas. 
She even wrote some of her earlier teenage fictions within those letters. Today, we can see in the body of Jane's work that her teenage self was just as steadfastly committed to her desire to write on her own terms as the 37-year-old Jane, who was critically praised after Pride and Prejudice, and when she was relishing the solitary elegance, quote unquote, of being an unmarried woman proudly riding in an open barouche along the Strand in London. Unwaveringly, this was a woman who understood and valued her brilliance, writing at one point, I must keep to my own style and go on in my own way, as she persisted and continuously edited her writing for 17 years before her first novel was published. I thought I knew Jane Austen. I'll I'll put my hand up here and say she was, of course, the author that I thought I knew. I knew I've been reading her since I was you know, a young child. I've had my crush on Mr. Darcy. I'm now mature enough to realise that that actually Captain Wentworth is the better bet. You know, all of that stuff. So you can love a writer, but, um, and I never quite bought into, again, uh, an academic take on her, very, I think, misogynist academic take on her, that she was this kind of frustrated, angry spinster. Not every woman's life is defined by her desire to have sex and marriage or sex or marriage or marriage or sex. But I do sense a, a loneliness in Jane Austen. And I think the, the, though her brothers, she was very close with her brothers and they were, some of them were very supportive of her. I think that relationship with Cassandra was so vital, so vital. That is Dr. Anna Beer, award-winning author and intrepid adventurer who delves into the veiled history of Cassandra and Jane Austen in her most recent book, Eve Bites Back, An Alternative History of English Literature. I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Beer the day after she returned from a month-long backpacking adventure, and she was so gracious to expand upon the findings covered in her fascinating book. I think Cassandra was was Jane's rock, um, and I think also we tend to forget how how little privacy, what we call privacy, people had in the past. You know, nobody spends any time on their own. Houses aren't built so you can spend time on your own. That isn't necessarily, it's it's very condescending to think that's about poverty. It's about you share space. And so Jane would have slept in the same bedroom as Cassandra much of her life. There wasn't this notion of, of, you know, she did a lot of her writing with Cassandra in the room and with other relatives in the room. Indeed, while Jane knew her own capabilities and kept marching forward with her literary dreams, it was Cassandra who, more than anyone, carved out the space for Jane to flourish and fiercely protected her sister's pursuits, as well as her reputation. Cassandra's influence on Jane's literary pursuits cannot be overstated, but history has made little mention of Cassandra Austin in connection with Jane's writing. Why exactly? What is history hiding? There's probably a good reason that you haven't heard too much about Cassandra. I mean, Cassandra was single-handedly responsible for making sure that her Jane's legacy, her letters, her private life stayed private. And that speaks to me of a woman who really wanted to keep quiet about herself as well. Good reasons for that. We all know that women in the public I, it's a tough gig. So they, and that was true in the 1790s and 1810s, just as much as it is now. What exactly was implied in those letters that would necessitate the drastic measures that Cassandra would take toward the end of her life to keep their correspondence so secret? When I was reading through the letters again, I suddenly came across this reference to her mother 
describing the sisters as the formidables. And from the perspective of a parent, I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, having Jane and Cassandra as very clever, very sassy, very sharp daughters, and probably working out quite early, they weren't going to marry, they were not going to do what was set out for them by society. In a letter to Cassandra dated January 3rd, 1796, Jane expressed the importance of their bond, writing, I do not like the word companion at all. It is such a cold, uncomfortable word. I cannot express my own sensations about anyone else who can so exactly understand me and so exactly make up for my deficiencies. Not only did Jane and Cassandra have an innate understanding of each other's personalities and creative desires, but they knew a very similar heartache, keeping nearly in step when one or the other experienced hardship. Both sisters remained unmarried, much to their mother's chagrin, as tragedy thwarted their attempts at marital happiness. In 1794, Cassandra was expectantly happy to be engaged to Thomas, Tom, Full, a former pupil of her father's. He was a student at Steventon as early as 1779, when Cassandra was only six years old, suggesting that Tom was several years older than his fiancée. In order to become more financially capable of marrying Cassandra, Tom accompanied his friend and cousin, Lord Craven, to the West Indies as a chaplain to his regiment in January 1796. While she waited for his return, she stayed with her future in-laws. That same month, Jane met a young Irishman named Tom Lefroy, who was visiting his uncle and aunt in Hampshire. Lefroy was on a break from his legal studies. They were both about 20 years old. Jane wrote three letters to Cassandra while she was away, describing Tom Lefroy and their encounters. The encounters included three balls, during which Austin and Lefroy danced and enjoyed each other's company immensely. After the last ball, Austin wrote to Cassandra on January 9, 1796. I'm almost afraid to tell you how my Irish friend and I behaved. Imagine to yourself everything most profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together. He is a very gentlemanlike, good-looking, pleasant young man, I assure you. He has but one fault, which time will, I trust, entirely remove. It is that his morning coat is a great deal too light. He is a very great admirer of Tom Jones, and therefore wears the same coloured clothes, I imagine, which he did when he was wounded. In her next letter, dated January 14, 1796, she anticipates with characteristic irony an upcoming party at the home of Lefroy's uncle. I look forward with great impatience to it, as I rather expect to receive an offer from my friend in the course of the evening. I shall refuse him, however, unless he promises to give away his white coat. Tell Mary that I make over Mr. Hartley and all his estate to her for her sole use and benefit in future, as I mean to confine myself in future to Mr. Tom Lefroy, for whom I do not care sixpence. But in a dramatic twist, the following day she wrote, at length, the day is come on which I am to flirt my last with Tom Lefroy. And when you receive this, it will be over. My tears flow as I write at the melancholy idea. It is believed that Tom Lefroy's uncle threatened to disinherit him should he marry Jane. And shortly thereafter, he returned to London and resumed his legal studies, eventually marrying Irish heiress Mary Paul in 1799, and becoming Lord Chief Justice of Ireland. Ironically, he named one of their daughters Jane, but 
Sadly, we'll never know if it was a romantic nod to Jane Austen or after Mary's mother, Jane Paul. One short year after Tom Full, Cassandra's fiance, left for the West Indies, he died of yellow fever in February 1797. Tom's death took an irreparable toll on Cassandra, and she never entertained another thought of marriage or romance. Out of affection and loyalty to her sister, also tending to her own heartbreak, Jane resigned herself to the same fate. Their mutual sympathy and love for one another, and the plight they faced side by side as unmarried women in a society that shunned such lifestyles, became the inspiration for Jane's most beloved characters and storylines. In the throes of their tandem romance and heartbreak, Jane wrote the initial manuscripts to two of her best-selling novels, Eleanor and Marianne, which later became Sense and Sensibility, and First Impressions, which later became Pride and Prejudice. Both stories center around formidable sisters navigating society and romance while grappling with fortune and fate. In her chapter on the Austin sisters, Dr. Beer states, quote, it's almost too easy to map these fictional sisters on to Jane and Cassandra, end quote. Furthermore, Jane would repeatedly seek to craft such happy endings for her characters as she and Cassandra had briefly hoped for, like that of the Bennett sisters' joint wedding in Pride and Prejudice. In a letter to Cassandra dated June 15, 1808, Jane wrote, I shall keep my own work and amuse myself with making a heroine whom no one but myself will much like. As Jane embarked deeper into her writing career, Cassandra became her trusted editor and her most ardent supporter. The two sisters would spend hours together discussing plot lines, developing characters, and polishing Jane's manuscripts. Cassandra's influence can be felt throughout Jane's works in positive but also protective ways. There are references in Jane's letters to Cassandra that hint at her involvement in Jane's writing process. In a letter dated January 1809, Jane writes, I'm looking over first impressions and will send you a few extracts in a day or two. I've torn through two volumes and a half and I'm to begin the third. The fact that Jane shares extracts from her novel in progress indicates that Cassandra played an active role in providing feedback and guidance. We could purport that Cassandra may have also encouraged Jane to temper her more sassy and outspoken nature for the sake of publishing. Jane was known for her wit and good turn of ironic phrase, and her characters didn't necessarily hide their struggles with propriety. But evidence in Jane's frequent revisions reveal fascinating moral recastings in Jane's writing. You also mentioned something to that effect in in Jane Austen having to to go back and edit what she had written as a teenager (laughs) that she took out or what Ah, is it that she admonished (laughs) some of the crude jokes that she had made in her earlier works. (laughs) She, the characters in her later works are the ones that were published, uh, admonished that kind Mm -hmm. of joking behavior or impropriety. I still, I I honestly, I mean, I'd love your perspective on this. I don't, I still don't quite know what to make of that. Yes. So the, I was thinking the, the, the story is that a, a, a slightly risque joke, a very risque joke. Yes. Um, in, well, I won't even say what it is in case I might offend people. Oh, no. Which we're, we're going beyond acceptable. that. <laughs> it was about anal sex. 
it was. I was like, when I read that, I was like, Everybody loves a sailor. Oh, my God. So teenage, teenage Jane with her family. Her father's a vicar, for goodness sake. (laughs) They can do all this stuff. Yeah. It's funny. 20 years on, she wants to be published. Mm -hmm. Now, did she? She actually keeps the the joke, Mm -hmm. but she gives it to the racy, immoral character of Mary Crawford. So interesting. Who's who's amazing, but she's she's a bad woman. She's a bad Mm -hmm. woman. And um, so she gives the dirty joke to her character, Mary Crawford. Now, is she doing, what what is she doing there? Is this a huge capitulation Mm -hmm. to the social pressures? Is she conforming, saying, does she genuinely believe that her teenage self you know, grow up, young Jane. Mm-hmm. This is not how the world works. It's not funny to make jokes about anal sex. It shows a shallowness. I, I, I can't decide. I don't Ooh. like to think of Jane Austen giving up on her younger self. I, I agree with you. I and know. you mentioned that in later in the chapter too that we want to we want to believe that she was an angel that Jane could do no wrong, and so it's so difficult to think that. <laughs> that there's any sort of selling out happening, which I think is the, for me, that's the big argument is was, I can look at it that way. Oh, Jane was selling out. She wanted to, she wanted to be published and her ambition got the better of her quote unquote, you know, to say that I, I don't think that I think that we're so it is ambition is so complex it is particularly complex in women yes. because it has been vilified. We, our ambition in general, the ambitious woman is the, uh, she is the bane of society. <laughs> and it, she, Jane yeah. was, for me, I thought she was incredibly clever that she mm-hmm. took something like this joke that clearly she found funny, clearly she found it was titillating to her, um, which it is. It's hilarious. She found a way to include it in this work. So I look at it that way is that that was how that that was intelligent. Was it yeah. potentially misaligned in being assigned to this character to propensi- mm-hmm. to to perpetuate these ideas that the bad girl is the only one yeah. who's going to say that? Perhaps was that an invention of the time? And just quite frankly, was that what she had to do in order to get published? Um, I applaud, I applaud her for that. I love your, your point that she's, she's bringing it into the room. Yes. And which is sometimes enough or the epigram to that chapter. Exactly. Exactly. The epigram to that chapter is almost screamed. Yes. And you could argue that that's always Jane Austen pulling back, but that word screamed is still there. If you almost scream, you still hear the scream. <laughs> At a pivotal time in Jane and Cassandra's lives, they intersected with a fellow kindred soul whose indelible mark on Jane's creative journey would remain a secret until only recently. Her name was Anne Sharp, to whom Jane's final letter from Chawton before her death was so warmly addressed. In 1805, 31-year-old Anne Sharp arrived at Godmersham Park, the sprawling estate of Edward Austin, for Anne to serve as governess for Fanny, the oldest of Edward and his wife Elizabeth's brood of children. 
At the time, Fanny was 11 years old and, like her Aunt Jane, was a prodigious writer, documenting all manner of life through a child's eyes at Godmersham Park in several tiny leather-bound notebooks with clasps. Fanny's detailed accounts would later become part of the discovery of Anne's collaboration and treasured friendship with Jane. Anne had arrived at Godmersham in mourning clothes after losing her mother the month earlier. She was penniless and from a much lower social standing than the Austins, but possessed a sharp mind and a deep love for literature. Fanny grew especially fond of her new governess and wrote affectionately of Anne throughout her notebooks. She was especially detailed about the schoolroom plays Anne would write for Fanny and the household to put on for amusement. While there are sadly no surviving manuscripts of Anne's plays or writing, she was prolific and it made an indelible impression on her young pupil. Tragedy struck the Austin sisters and their mother in 1805 when Reverend Austin died, leaving them without an inheritance, as that went to the eldest Austin brother, nor a home, as by that time, Reverend Austin had retired from clergy life and moved the Austin women from Steventon to the seaside town of Bath. While Brother Edward was reluctant to assist on account of his well-to-do wife's misgivings about the outspoken Jane, which, by the way, sniffs of the parallel characters in Sense and Sensibility, ironically, <laughs> he did in fact invite his sisters and mothers to stay at Godmersham, and then in one of the less desirable homes within his estate. Eventually, when his beloved wife passed, he softened and gave his mother and sisters upgraded accommodations in the form of charming Chotton Cottage. Jane's correspondence to a friend in April 1805 first makes mention of meeting Miss Sharp. Fanny's pocket diary recalls the balmy summer day, uh, June 26, 1805 to be exact, when she noted Aunt Jane and her beloved governess collaborating on a delightful play for the household. In the months between, historians have reason to believe Jane and Anne had initially bonded over the lavish library at Godmersham upon Jane's first visit to her brother after the death of her father, but that Jane had to be careful of public scrutiny of their friendship, given their class differences. Jane and Anne kept in close contact through letters during the spring of 1805. So by the time of Fanny's detailed account of June 26th revelry and merriment, the pair had already struck up a considerably close friendship. The terrific book, A Secret Sisterhood, by authors and friends Emily Midori Kawa and Emma Claire Sweeney, makes mention, quote, as a writer herself, Anne was better placed to help than even Jane's dear sister, Cassandra. But the governess and the house guest couldn't have risked spending too much time engaging in literary conversations without irritating Godmersham's mistress, Elizabeth, Edward's snobby wife, end quote. The book also gives a lovely description of the day based on Fanny's notes. The book reads, quote, the pair would cement their bond with the unthreatening environs of the schoolroom, the one place where Anne held sway. Fanny's entry in her lady's pocket diary on June 26, 1805, escapes into the columns usually reserved for records of money received or spent. Her accounts of the day's antics fizzes with joy at the memory of dressing up and playing at school along with her governess, aunts, mother, grandmother, and her cousins. The girls decked themselves out in costume, 
And to their delight, the adults joined in. In her cross-dressing role as sergeant, Anne issued orders to those who usually held rank over her. Jane and Cassandra were assigned characters strikingly similar to Anne's real-life role, with Jane playing the part of Miss Popham, the teacher, and Cassandra cast as Mrs. Teacham, the governess. Anne moved between the part of the sergeant and that of the dancing master. This sort of activity appealed to Jane, for she loved cotillions and scotch reels, and her nimble footwork had long inspired admiration. Cassandra, far more reserved than the rest, could not deny her nieces the pleasure of seeing all the adults make a show of themselves, end quote. <laughs> the day's events continued into the evening, in fact, when Anne managed to maneuver the party from playing school to acting in a drama that she herself had secretly penned, titled Pride Punished. Some scholars actually believe this title influenced Jane to rename the initial manuscript for her novel, First Impressions, which had been rejected for publication in 1797, to eventually Pride and Prejudice. Emily and Emma Clare go on to say in their book, quote, Certainly, most biographers have deemed it unworthy of scholarly attention that the great Jane Austen share a rapport with a scribbler of children's entertainments, whose scripts no one thought to save. But the events of the coming months and years reveal that Jane treated Anne as her most trusted literary friend. Understanding both the value of the governess's playwriting and the constraints under which she labored due to the demands of her teaching work. End quote. Until 1805, Jane had become discouraged about her work, fearing it would never be published. But after meeting Anne, she found a renewed vigor and began to revisit her earlier manuscripts. Interestingly, Jane was able to convince her brother, along with Cassandra and their mother, to allow Anne to accompany them on a seaside holiday that autumn to the coastal town of Worthing. During quiet weeks along the shore, the pair were able to engage in spirited discussions about literature without fear of judgment, and as a result, they were able to write uninterrupted. It was there that Jane reworked an earlier manuscript for her shortest novel, Lady Susan, which wasn't published until long after her death and never quite gained popularity. While the seaside holiday was good for Anne's spirits, she had been in delicate health for the past year and eventually left employment at Godmersham in 1806. Meanwhile, the two friends kept up regular correspondence, with Miss Sharp becoming my dearest Anne in Jane's letters. In 1809, Jane noted feeling rather, quote-unquote, languid and solitary at Godmersham without Anne as company. She also began to worry about the circumstances of her good friend. So she did what good friends do, and sought employment, and a bit more for Anne, with Sir William Pilkington of Yorkshire. Expressing in a letter to Cassandra, I do so want him to marry her. Oh, Sir William. Sir William, how I will love you if you will love Miss Sharp. Sir William did not oblige, as he was much too high above Anne in social standing. But did Jane's actions inspire the matchmaking adventures of her much-beloved character Emma, involving Mr. Weston and governess Jane Fairfax? It's plausible, right? Actions such as this certainly imply that Jane worried about Anne as she would have about her own sister. But what of Cassandra's relationship with Anne? 
While Cassandra was most likely at Jane's side on the occasions where Anne was present in person, there is no evidence that Cassandra befriended Anne in the same way that Jane had. To Jane, Anne was entirely her own friend. After the Austin women moved to Chawton, Anne was invited to stay in August 1811, but after much lengthy debate. Cassandra resented the strength of Jane's admiration for her fellow writer. After all, it was Cassandra who had been Jane's earliest and most loyal confidant. Cassandra had been Jane's trusted advisor and editor through the earliest years of her writing, and they had been side by side through each tumult of their lives. At Chawton, Cassandra had even undertaken the bulk of the household management to better allow for Jane to write unencumbered day and night at the tiny 12-sided walnut table beside the parlor's fire. What did she lack that Anne possessed? Anne had secured employment nearby as a governess for the children of Sir William's sister-in-law, the widowed Lady Pilkington, actually. And in the years that followed her only visit to Chawton, Jane came to rely upon Anne's literary advice quite heavily on the heels of her long-awaited publishing success. In 1811, Sense and Sensibility was finally published to modest success. And in 1813, Pride and Prejudice went on to become a bestseller. Jane sent Anne copies of both books and asked for her opinion of them. The letter Anne sent to Jane in November 1813, following the publication of Pride and Prejudice, caused the novelist to swell with pride. She wrote to Cassandra, Oh, I have more of such sweet flattery from Miss Sharp. She is an excellent, kind friend. In the spring of 1814, after enjoying the success of her first two published novels, Jane thought Mansfield Park, her next published novel, was her best work yet. But it was met without fanfare, nor a single review for that matter. Finding the silence unbearable, Jane begged Anne to give her an honest assessment of the novel. The response, which the novelist later jotted down, is as close as history comes to recording Anne's voice. Jane noted that Anne had praised its good sense and moral tendency, as well as natural and just characterization. But the pair's bond was strong enough to cope with criticism, too. Jane also noted that Anne said, As you beg me to be perfectly honest, I confess I prefer P&P. Rather than offer the effusive kind of praise she had for Pride and Prejudice, she kindly assessed the weaknesses as well as the strengths of her friend's work, and Jane valued this support. After all, despite Jane's modest level of fame, Anne remained her only writer friend. Jane's fourth novel, Emma, was published in 1815 by John Murray, who'd gained both stellar reputation and fortune as the publisher for notables such as Lord Byron, Goethe, Herman Melville, Charles Darwin, among others, including Queen Victoria in his latter years. Jane was allocated 12 presentation copies of Emma by Murray. Nine were sent to family members, including Jane herself, one to the librarian of the Prince Regent, to whom the work was dedicated, and one to fellow best-selling writer Martha Edgeworth, under obligation from the publisher. The twelfth went to Anne Sharp, the only copy given to a personal friend and a testament to the strength of Jane's feelings for Anne. Jane documented that Anne admitted that she liked it. Better than MP but not so well as P&P, &P. was pleased with the heroine for her originality, delighted with Mr. K, 
and called Mrs. Elton beyond praise, yet not convinced by the portrait of Jane Fairfax. In this critique, Anne might have felt twinges of judgment from the account of Jane Fairfax's future as a governess having been ridiculed by the other characters in the novel. We can only assume Jane Austen simply innocently or ignorantly didn't realize this may have struck a nerve with her friend. However, Jane did mention one particular piece of Anne's feedback in a letter to her publisher. Miss Sharp prefers an ending to be more moral than artistic. This certainly implies that Anne was indeed a trusted literary advisor to Jane. Her input on the moral aspect of Jane's work highlights the depth of their intellectual engagement and suggests a profound level of mutual respect, very akin to the trust Jane placed in her sister, Cassandra. While the extent of their friendship may never be fully known due to the limited surviving evidence, these anecdotes and references provide glimpses into the close bond between Jane and Anne. While outwardly, their friendship seemed unconventional for the time, with Anne occupying a lower social position than Jane, but their bond transcended those social boundaries. A testament to the power of genuine connection and shared intellectual pursuits. The most telling piece of evidence as to the depth of their friendship is undoubtedly the final letter Jane wrote to Anne from Chotton before her death. As we heard in the letter, Anne was very dear to Jane, as Jane was to Anne. Upon Jane's death, Anne wrote to Cassandra with a humble request for a lock of Jane's hair. With empathy, and as one of the only people who truly knew the extent of Jane and Anne's friendship, Cassandra felt it only right to oblige the request. Cassandra replied with the following. Monday the 28th of July, 1817. Chawton. My dear Miss Sharp, I have great pleasure in sending you the lock of hair you wish for, and add a pair of clasps which she sometimes wore, and a small bodkin which she had had in constant use for more than 20 years. I know how these articles, trifling as they are, will be valued by you, and I'm very sure that if she is now conscious of what is passing on earth, it gives her pleasure they should be so disposed of. I am quite well in health, and my mother is very tolerably so, and I am much more tranquil than with your ardent feelings you could suppose possible. What I have lost no one but myself can know. You are not ignorant of her merits. But who can judge how I estimated them? God's will be done, I have been able to say so all along. I thank God that I have. If anything should ever bring you into attainable distance from me, we must meet my dear Miss Sharp. Believe me very truly, your affectionate friend, Cassandra Elizabeth Austin. Perhaps Cassandra had finally come round to considering Anne a friend, just as Jane had. There's no doubt that Anne treasured these gifts from Cassandra for the remainder of her life. Just like Jane and Cassandra, Anne never married. In 1823, she founded her own boarding school for girls in Everton, near Liverpool, an endeavor her friend Jane would have praised her for. Anne died in 1853. After Jane's death, Cassandra became the executor of her sister's literary estate. She inherited Jane's unfinished manuscripts and took on the responsibility of preserving and promoting her sister's work, helping their brother Henry to get Persuasion, Northanger Abbey, and Lady Susan published posthumously. But in 1843, just a few years before her own death at the age of 70, Cassandra did the unthinkable. 
Over the course of a few days, Cassandra read each and every letter correspondence she had saved of Jane's. She pressed them to her heart, committed the contents to memory, and then threw anything that she deemed too indelicate or damning to her sister's reputation into a rolling fire. Over two-thirds of the thousands of letters of Jane Austen were destroyed, willingly, by the person who most loved her. Among those letters were ones to and from Anne Sharp, with a final letter from Chotten spared, most likely out of sentiment for Jane's last days. Only 161 letters survived, which Cassandra passed along to Austin Relations as mementos. In her will, Cassandra also left Anne a gift of 30 pounds. These were the actions of a grief-stricken sister who to her dying day remained loyal and protective. But as a result, the nuances of the two most important relationships in Jane Austen's life remain shrouded in mystery. The truth may forever elude us, hidden within the recesses of their shared memories and unspoken words. Within the story of Jane Austen's kindred bonds with Cassandra Austen and Anne Sharp, we are left with a renewed appreciation for the power of connection and collaboration among women. Jane's literary genius was nurtured and fueled by the love, support, and intellectual companionship of her loyal sister and a friend who shared an innate understanding of life as an aspiring writer. They were Jane's cherished confidants. In a world that often dismissed women's voices, they provided a sanctuary for Jane's voice to flourish and live on. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. If you are intrigued by what you've heard, I would genuinely love for you to subscribe and share, as well as rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. My deepest thanks to Dr. Anna Beer for our delightful conversation about the Austin sisters and for providing the inspiration for the entire concept of Virtuosa Society back in 2017 through her exhaustive exploration of the stories of hidden female composers in her book, Sounds and Sweet Airs. I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of her new book, Eve Bites Back, at your local bookstore or wherever you buy books. I personally recommend Powell City of Books in Portland, which is where I purchased my copy. Listen for more of my conversation with Anna in future episodes, too. Check out the show notes for a list of references mentioned throughout the episode. And follow at Virtuosa Society on Instagram and Facebook for even more fascinating background on the Austin Sisters and Anne Sharp. This episode is a Virtuosa Society production, written and produced by me, Katie Harmon, with audio engineering by Will Kauser. Title music is by Anna Landstrom. <laughs>